Would you pray with me? Lord, we sung a song, a, a phrase this morning, Riches I heed not, nor man's earthly praise. Lord, would your Holy Spirit help us this morning to see if that is indeed true? If indeed we do not heed to riches, do not seek man's empty praise, that we are so confident and satisfied in our inheritance being you, that uh, riches and empty praise of man have no place for us, have no allure to us. Lord, I, I suspect that's not true. I suspect that's not very true of many of us. I suspect, Lord, that a great deal of our lives is meant pursuing the very things we sung uh, against. <laughs> I suspect, Lord, that the truth is, is that a lot of decisions we make are built around a love for riches, a trust in riches, and even more so, Lord, a, a hope, a seeking in the empty praise of others. Lord, I, I suspect there are singles here today, Lord, who are longing for another human being to tell them they are worth something uh, in, in a special way, when indeed, Lord, you are our inheritance, you are our identity. I suspect, Lord, there, there are people here today who, are, who have spent most of their life, uh, day, uh, most of their week, uh, concerned about the almighty dollar, um, concerned about what it buys them, what it can buy them, a false sense of security, of temporary comfort. I suspect, Lord, that we do heed riches and man's empty praise so often. I suspect, Lord, we are not that deeply satisfied in our inheritance in you. And yet, Lord, your mercy is more. Lord, it is, a, it is a glorious, true, but baffling fact that you are patient with the ungodly. That you are impatient with the double-minded. That you are patient with the, uh, the uh, split-tongued, the hypocritical. Uh, you are patient with those that identify the truth but then really don't walk in it and lord if you were not patient toward sinners if you were not patient and steadfast in your love toward sinners we would have no place to stand this morning Lord, we gathered together as a people of mercy and mercy alone we gather together only because of grace we have not a moral leg to stand on we, Lord, are wrought through, apart from Christ, wrought through with compromise and hypocrisy and lies. And yet, Lord, your mercy, your mercy is more. Our sins are many. They really are many. Our sins are so many. But, Lord, where sin abounds, your grace abounds much more. We stand together as a people in need of a Savior who did not heed riches, who did not, Lord, heed empty praise of men, but who knew what was in the heart of man and did not seek man. We stand in need of a Savior who lived a perfect life because we've not lived anything close to a life in obedience to God's laws. And we stand in need of a Savior who would offer his perfect righteousness up for us to redeem his enemies for the sake of his glory. So we stand today, Lord, together, a congregation calling out 
thanking you and calling out for more of your mercy. We praise your name, Lord, as we open your word. May you open our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we can dismiss our kiddos to children's ministry. Now, we will have a family meeting after the message, uh, after the service, and we will ask you parents to run down and grab your kiddos at that time. So Seth will remind you of that uh, during his portion of the, of the service. But uh, be prepared to go and get your kiddos, bring them back up here for a short family meeting. If you want to open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. We're going to continue something we picked up two weeks ago, discussing prayer. Um, there are all kinds of prayers and all kinds of categories of prayer in the Bible. There's a prayer of thanksgiving we see in the book of Acts and elsewhere. Uh, a little bit later in chapter 1, we're going to see... Uh, if you just turn my mic down some, it's just hot. Uh, a little later in Acts 1, the disciples will pray for discernment and guidance. Uh, sometimes you'll see uh, these categories of prayer shuffled throughout the scriptures, these different kinds of prayer. And sometimes you'll see one prayer that includes multiple kinds and multiple categories. I, I had this memory as I was thinking about prayer this week. One of the very first times, I think the first time I remember praying actually happened in Kansas City. I think I was, I don't remember how old I was, about five years old. And we had come up to the big city from Jeff City. We'd come up to Kansas City to go to Worlds of Fun. And, uh, you know the sign that says you must be this tall to ride this ride? Well, one of the problems with being tall is your, 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 height, your height allows you on rides that your emotional maturity should not, should not permit. And so there I was, very young, I mean, five, four, something like that, and I was on the Orient Express, which that's a scary ride to me back, back in the day, and I was not prepared at all. I didn't know until that day that I was afraid of heights. And I remember sitting on this roller coaster with my mom, and I was freaking out as we were clicking up and up and up and up and up. And I understood that that means one thing. And I'm freaking out, and my mom says, well, let's just pray. The whole ride, let's just pray. And I'm like, how do I pray right now? What, what, what are you talking about, woman? And, you know, she, she, uh, she said, let's pray the Lord's Prayer. And so... I remember, I'm serious, uh, the first, I think this is the first memory of prayer I can remember is, is starting that downhill on the Oregon Express, worlds of fun, saying, our Father who art in heaven. <laughs> and I tell you, the people around us, I never thought about that until this week, but this little five-year-old screaming, our Father who art in heaven, <laughs> hallowed be thy name, <laughs> thy kingdom come just not right now, <laughs> But the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that has a lot of different categories of prayer within it. I mean, that's a pretty cool thing. You know, you've got, you've got the, 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 the hallowing, the adoration, hallowed be thy name. You've got the supplication, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. So that in one prayer, you've got all sorts of different kinds or categories of prayer. Uh, some of the more rare categories or kinds of prayer are found in our text today uh, in Acts chapter 1. Let me read this little verse to you, Acts 1.14, and see if you can pick out some kinds or categories here. Uh, all these things, all these with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So I see three different kinds or categories of prayer 
in this particular moment. And I want to talk about that with you this morning. The first thing to point out is that this is a corporate prayer. And that's probably the thing you'd notice right away because that's the emphasis of the text. That they were all gathered together, together to pray. Uh, corporate prayer is a big deal. I said two weeks ago that big things come before, uh, prayer comes before big things. You know, most of the time in the Bible when something big happens, prayer comes before that big thing. And most of the time that prayer is God's people praying together. Not just a single individual but a collective, a group of people praying together. I would love to think and talk more about why that is. Why is it that corporate prayer is so important to the scriptures? And I just want to throw one thing out to you, and we'll, we'll talk about it more as we work through the book of Acts. But you know, James tells us that we really do need to pray without doubting, that we really do need to have faith to accompany our prayers. Uh, so if I'm putting the biblical data together, one of the reasons why corporate prayer seems important to me is that any individual in this room is, is, is on their best days, mostly doubt and some faith, right? Mostly doubt and some faith. We were working on the building this uh, yesterday. It was a great day, and I was pulling out insulation, and I was telling the kids, you know, insulation is 90% air. And Ben Nichols said, and 10% cancer. Uh, but, uh, you know, on our best days, we're about 10% faith. You know, I mean, that's, that's, we're really doing well if we're about 10% faith. I think one of the great things God does in corporate prayer is we have the chance to gather together. And as the Proverbs say, we have a chance to braid our tiny little fibers of belief together. You have a little belief. I have a little belief. You have a little belief. And together we get together and we braid that into something surer and truer and bigger than just ourselves. So that's one of the things we see in this text, corporate prayer. We'll talk about this a lot as we progress through the book of Acts. We also see another rare form of prayer here in this prayer, and that is prayer for God himself. This is one of the rarer forms of prayer that we see take place in our actual prayer lives. The prayer for more of God. See, these guys and gals were praying for the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised that they would receive the Holy Spirit, and their response to that promise was to gather together and pray for it to be so. So in this particular prayer, we see a group of people gathered corporately to ask for more of God himself. Now, if you've never been to our, our, our corporate monthly prayer meeting, this is by and large what that prayer meeting is about. It, it's not that we don't pray for specific things, that, that comes up from time to time. But, but by and large, our corporate prayer gatherings on the fourth Wednesday of every month is, right, Seth, uh, is, is, is a corporate prayer gathering to pray for God himself, to, to be blessed by the Lord himself. And honestly, that's one of the rarer prayers that the average believer prays. Most people don't find themselves often praying for more of God. Uh, this is the kind of prayer that we see Paul using in the book of Ephesians, for instance, and it's a kind that I commend to you and will continue to commend to you. So that's another category we see here. We see people gather together in corporate prayer. We see them seeking more of God. And thirdly, this is perhaps the most practical of the three. We see this category of prayer where they are praying for something that has already been promised. Now, this is, this is going to give a little insight into prayer in general. They're praying for something that has already been promised. 
one of the most common objections to prayer of all kinds is simply, if I know God loves me, and I already know that God will take care of me, why should I pray? If I know that God has promised to work everything to good, why should I pray? Why should I pray when God has already promised to take care of me? Why should I tell him my needs when he said he already knows his needs? Why should I ask for more of God when he's promised to draw me closer to himself? And so on and so forth. Whether we uh, articulate this objection or not, a great reason for prayerlessness in the average believer's life is because we pit the sovereignty and good nature of God against his commands to pray. And we say, gosh, I mean, it seems like prayer is redundant. I'm an efficiency addict. I love efficiency. And the main reason I love efficiency is because I'm a great sinner who takes pride in finding the quicker way to do stuff so I can look at all you people who do it so inefficiently. I, I, I really do love efficiency. And many of you love efficiency. Many of you are engineers at heart, whether you are in profession or not. And you look at this idea and it seems kind of redundant, like a redundancy, like a loss of energy, right? Like a, like a, like a, like a momentum suck. If God has already promised to do these things, why do I need to ask God to do what he's already promised to do? And I think that's really relevant for this particular passage, that question. So look back at verse 4 of Acts chapter 1. Why do the disciples pray when God has already promised? Let's establish that that's what's happening here, first of all. Verse 4. And while staying with them... He ordered, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's a promise, right? Jesus has promised they will receive the Holy Spirit. And there's no condition to that promise. They're not told they have to do anything for that except simply wait, right? Verse 8. Again, it's restated. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is promising them the Holy Spirit. There's no condition. They will receive power. Now, how do they respond to this promise? Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they'd entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his disciples and his brothers. Sorry. So you see what's happening here. You see the promise of Jesus. And how do they respond to the promise of Jesus? They engage in prayer, which is exactly the opposite of what that question, that hypothetical question I threw out says, right? The hypothetical question being, if God has already promised to do X, Y, and Z, why do I need to ask him to do X, Y, and Z? Now, I want to help you see how that question is at the heart of a bunch of different issues real quickly before we answer it. First is this. Most of God's promises in the scriptures pertain to God's people as a corporate entity. Most of God's promises are for God's collective people. 
So if we figure out why and how we should pray in the face of God's promises, that will affect our corporate prayer. Furthermore, praying for more of God really gets to the heart of this question. Doesn't that kind of feel weird to you? Have you ever asked God for, for more, more God? You know, more of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? There's, it just feels very theologically sketchy. What, what, do we, what do we mean when we're asking for more of God? You know, well, and, and how does that fit into just our, our regular prayer life? What, is it, what does it mean to do this? Well, if we can answer this larger question of why do I pray for what God has already promised, that will help us, that will help inform this other issue of what do we mean and why should we pray and ask for more of God? So let's think through this question. Why should we pray when God has already promised, and I think it will affect the way we think of corporate prayer, and I think it will affect the way we think about asking for more of God. So first reason why we should pray in the face of God's promises is because God said so. Um, if we look back in Luke, uh, during our time in Luke, one of the tricks of what we call the scoffer, what the Bible calls the scoffer, is to pit one of God's characteristics against something else that he said. Right? Uh, it, it's the trick of the scoffer, the trick of the fool, is to turn something God said against something else God said, assuming that there's most likely contradiction with God and not with us, right? So this question that I'm posing, why should we pray in the face of God's promises, is in and of itself a bit sketchy. The simple truth is, God has promised things and he has told us to pray for those things. And at the heart of this, sometimes we disguise our fatalism as faith. We disguise our fatalism as faith. We say that the reason for our prayerlessness or our lack of zeal in general is because God has sovereignly orchestrated and ordained all things and we believe in that. The truth is we're lazy and self-indulgent and we don't want to do the hard thing, but we call it faith because we're hypocrites. So one of the simple reasons why we should pray in the face of God's promises is because consistently God tells us to pray and consistently God issues promises. We are making something a contradiction which God does not see as a contradiction. So I'm going to give you a lot of good practical reasons why we should pray in the face of God's promises. But I think we should start with just deciding to choose to be obedient children who obey the God of the universe when he tells us to do something. And God has been very clear. He has told us to pray in response to his promises. Uh, the second reason why we should do this is because our leaders did it. Again, this is a test of pride as Pretty much all prayer is, by the way. It's a test of pride. My first reason for why we should pray in the face of God's promises is because he told us to. And my second reason is another test of pride because our leaders did it. Again, the opportunity to test where our hearts really are is the fact that those who came before us so consistently for two millennium have commended prayer as the source of their real power does that hold sway on our autonomous, individualistic, too big for our britches view of Christianity? Are we persuaded to pray because we look back and see men like these apostles 
praying. That ought to have a persuasive weight on our souls. If the fact that other generations have consistently testified to the power of prayer in the life of the church doesn't have sway on us, then we can tell what the real issue is behind our prayerlessness. It's we're just a bit of the sassy pants. We think we know more than we do. We're above instruction. We need to be humbled. The truth is, as you walk through the book of Acts, you could make a case that in every other area, we are walking with these men and women. We do have a quite commendable, though plenty of room for growth, quite commendable safety net in the church. We care for one another's needs. We have the word. I mean, it's not, you know, you're not getting Peter and Paul level sermons, but, you know, it's not bad. We have corporate gathering. We have times of gathering. You go through the recipe, and we've got so many of the ingredients, but if you were to point to the one ingredient that is most consistently lacking in the modern church, it would be serious, urgent, frequent, committed corporate prayer. And the fact that we so often, we know this, I'm not telling you anything new, but the fact that we are so uh, stubborn when faced with this very clear testimony of God's work in history and resist committing to and exercising actively in corporate prayer tells us a lot about our hearts. And then a lot of our objections to prayer or our questions about prayer are just smoke screens meant to disguise from the larger heart issue. Friends, if just the shortcut, fast-forward version of this, this sermon is simply this. We don't pray because we are prideful people. We don't ask God. We don't talk to God. We don't seek God because we are prideful people. And so many of these questions that seem legitimate are actually just smoke screens meant to throw up and hide what is genuinely a heart issue. We pray so little because we think so much of ourselves. So there's two reasons. God said so. Our leaders did so. Number three, we pray in the face of God's promises because a lot of trouble comes in the waiting. Uh, These guys were unified in prayer, and it's the first time I could think of where they were unified in anything. Think of all the trouble these disciples could have gotten into as they waited for this promise. Friends, there's always a gap. There's always a gap between what God says and what we see. Right? There's always a gap between what God says and what we see. And here's the deal. We just don't do well in that gap. We will come up with all sorts of ways to make a mess in the gap between what God says and what we see. Indwelling sin is always seeking a way to sabotage the coming blessing of God. We don't do well with waiting periods. So when God makes a promise to us, there will be some sort of gap between when he makes the promise and when the promise actually comes to pass. And in between when he makes the promise and when the promise comes to pass, we can make so many messes. And I think the disciples understood this. Certainly they understood the story of Abraham and Sarah. Right? The the story of Abraham and Sarah is an example of this very principle. There's God's promise that they will have an uh, offspring, you know, a 
just abundant offspring, an abundant legacy. There's the promise of that. And then there's the delivery of that. There's a gap between those two things. Well, what do they do with that gap? They make a mess of things, don't they? Friends, one of the reasons why we pray in the face of God's promises is because it's about the best thing we can do while we wait. We should be active and alert in prayer in between God's promises and his provision of that promise because we need to understand that our hearts are so prone to linger, so prone to wander, that we need to pray as we wait that God would care for our hearts and keep them stable and secure and centered on him. So that's number three. The number three reason why we should pray while we wait for God's promises uh, provision is because we get into a lot of trouble while we're waiting. I hope you see that about yourself. Number four, because anticipation is part of the enjoyment. Anticipation is part of the enjoyment. Why would God allow there to be such a gap between his promise and his provision? He doesn't need there to be a gap. It's not like he has to go find the funds. Right. It's not like he has to go like figure out how he's going to fulfill these promises. There doesn't need to be any gap between God's promise and his provision. So why is there so often a gap? Sometimes a very big gap of time. Why? Well, I mean, that's way above my pay grade. It's way above my status as a human being. But one thing I can tell you that I've seen in my life is that part of enjoyment is anticipation. Part of enjoyment is anticipation. Any kind of promise that has a firm date set to it spawns an eve of that date. So Christmas Eve exists because Christmas exists. Anticipation exists because the promise exists. Part of the joy that God is giving you and I is he's he's giving us the joy of anticipation. Not only the joy of fulfillment, but the joy of anticipating that fulfillment. This is the joy of, of, of anticipation and engagement or the joy of anticipation as you're, as you're uh, on a diet and you're just looking forward to that, 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 that celebratory or that cheat meal. This is the idea of anticipation as an enjoyment of itself. God is so good to us, so generous that he not only wants to give us the gift, but he wants us to give us the gift of anticipation. And prayer builds up that sense of anticipation as we rehearse God's promises, as we lean into God's promises, as we pray God's promises, we build up a sense of anticipation for his provision. And anticipation is part of the enjoyment. Anticipation also creates sensitization. It, It stirs up within us an expectancy so that we know God's provision has come when it does indeed come. At the beginning of Luke is is really a a great place to go back and study the role of anticipation in preparation. Because the way Luke begins his gospel is by showing us all these people who have been leaning in and praying for God's promise to come to pass. And all these people who have been leaning in are the ones who are sensitive to God's promise when it is fulfilled. So, number five, anticipation creates sensitization. I think I've told you this story before, but years ago we were on a, a road trip to see my brother in Omaha, and we told Wes he was probably six or so, six or seven years old. We told him along the way, you know, trying to keep him encouraged as he made this long drive. 
hey, man, when you get there, you're going to get to go swimming. When you get there, you're going to get to go swimming. And that was just his thing. That was his mantra for every hour as we drove. When I get there, I'm going to get to go swimming. Well, before we got to the hotel, we stopped on the campus of the college there to meet my brother. Uh, he was a student at school at that time. And he and I are talking, and everybody's kind of looking behind me. And I realize, well, I don't know where my seven-year-old kid is. And I turn around, and he's stripped down, and he's in the fountain. Swimming in the fountain. So he actually got to go swimming twice that day. Anticipation sensitizes us to the fulfillment. It makes us sensitive to the fulfillment of God's promise. Number six, because stewardship isn't simple. Stewardship isn't simple. Anticipation should also lead to a kind of equipping. Here's here's the basic formula. God's delivery of the goods is never in doubt. But my stewardship of those goods is really in doubt. God's delivery of the, of the promise is never in doubt. But my stewardship of that promise, once it arrives, is profoundly in doubt. God will provide. I will probably screw it up. So prayer has this way of equipping my heart conforming my heart to God's will in general. And I should spend as much time, I should be thankful. I should, should is operative here. I don't want to paint myself as being super spiritual, but here's how this should work. I should be thankful for the gap between God's promise and his provision because it gives me time to prepare to be a good steward of the gift he gives me. Because that's the real central question. The central question is not, will God be good to me in the future? Will God provide what, what I need in the future? Those aren't the questions. The question is, will I be a good steward when that gift comes? Will I hold that gift well? Will I use it to bless others? Will I allow it to have its full effect in my own life? You know, they say that youth is wasted on the young. And I, I think that's, that's true, uh, I think that's just true with most good gifts. I think, again, another thing about God's mercy, I think if we understood how much of his goodness we squandered already in our lives, how much free time we've frittered away, how many date nights we've allowed to turn into fight nights, how many bonuses or unexpected financial windfalls we've wasted, how, how many kindnesses of God we've just trampled and squandered I think if we understood how wasteful we are with God's goodness and how 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 high the standard of stewardship really is I think if we understand that we would almost say to God please wait I don't want to mess this one up I don't want to squander this anymore I, I don't want to waste this please just do a work in my heart that lets me fully steward your goodness. I don't want to be a full-time squanderer of your many blessings and gifts. I, I want to be a good steward. God is going to deliver his blessings because that's who God is. The question is, who am I? What kind of steward will I be when those gifts arrive? Friends, are you conscious? I mean, are you conscious of the sheer weight of stewardship that comes from being as blessed as you are blessed. In order for this whole 
eternal justice thing to make sense? In order for, for, the, for the, the weak to be made strong and the last to be first, in order for this kind of final moment of cosmic justice to make sense, the haves and the have-nots need to be held to some standard. Right? The question that Jesus issues repeatedly in the parables is, what have you done with what I've given you? What have you done with what I've given you? Have you been faithful in the small things? Have you understood the wealth that I've brought your way? And then the question becomes, Lord, my heart is so prone to wander. I am so apt to make life about myself. And I look at the treasury of goodness you've deposited in my life. The friends, the opportunities, the time, the days, the health. I look at all of this deposited and I ask myself, Lord, how can I be a better steward of what you've already given me? To spend time in prayer in that gap between God's promise and his provision is never a wasted thing. Because God's goodness isn't in question, but my goodness as a steward of his goodness is a massive question. I think as you get to a certain age, you realize it really, at some point, isn't about how much. And it's really about what you do with what you got. And you begin through life. This is an a, a, a insight to your, for, for, for younger people here. At some point when you're like in your, your 40s or whatever, you begin to meet really smart people who have done nothing with it, right? And you begin to meet really intelligent people who have done nothing, or really uh, wealthy people who have done nothing with it, and really healthy people who have done nothing with it. And then you meet these people who have not very much intelligence, and they've maxed it out. And you meet people who have not very much help, and they've maxed it out. And you begin to see, oh my goodness, it's really not about the volume of the gifts. It's about the work that God has done inside someone that's made them either a great steward or not. So we pray in the face of God's promises because not because we're wondering whether those promises will come true, we're wondering if we'll be true with those promises. We also pray, this is number seven, and this is the main point of the text. We pray because the gift and the giver are not supposed to diverge from one another. The gift and the giver must not diverge. I was listening to Romans the other day and was struck by the contrast that God or that Paul makes in the book of Romans. There are certain uh, mile markers on the road to judgment. So God's gifts come into a person's life. And they either lead to eternal joy or eternal judgment. And the Bible says that for the most part, in most of, for most people, God's gifts will wind up leading to judgment and not joy. And, and, but there are certain mile markers along the way that you can kind of see, well, which, which way am I headed? So for a lot of people, God's gifts lead to presumption. When God is blessing, when he is giving, we are not thankful, we are not... We're not even mindful of God's gifts. We're just presuming upon God. It's like, well, it's here. I, I, don't, I don't even take time. So it's, so it's presumption and ingratitude. For, for people who are headed to judgment for the way they've stewarded God's gifts, 
there's a great deal of jealousy and covetousness and comparison. There's always a looking around for what someone else has that I don't have. And there's an, I get a fixed on what God hasn't given me, what he's given everybody else. But for those that are leading, heading toward judgment, this presumption, this ingratitude, a jealousy, a pride takes position in response to God's gifts. God's gifts, for some people, for many people, stir up these responses. Ingratitude, presumption, covetousness, pride. But there are other people for whom God's gifts lead to joy. And what you see as mile markers in these people's lives, things like gratitude. Thank you, God. Dependence. Lord, I, I don't want to allow this gift to take place for my dependence on you. I don't, I don't want to allow your financial blessings in my life to take the place of my dependence on you. Uh, generosity. There's a turning around and a giving and a glad giving at that. And there's a humility and a holy fear that comes from people that are blessed with God's gifts. But the biggest difference is this. The biggest difference between those who take God's gifts and wind up being judged for them and those who take God's gifts and wind up finding eternal joy the biggest difference is this. The way of joy involves the gift and the giver staying together. And the way of judgment involves the gift and the giver being pitted against each other. This is the basic way we interact with God's gifts. The way of judgment is a, is a, a pitting against, a separation of the gift and the giver. The way of joy is that somehow in God's, in, in, in God's sovereign, saving grace, he does a work in our hearts that allows the gift, the good gifts of God, to be on ramps to a relationship with God, not a, not a frontage road away from, the, away from God. So those who receive God's gifts that wind up being filled with joy, eternal joy, are those who find the gift and the giver converging. And those who wind up in judgment, though they've been blessed, are those who see the separation occur where the gift and the giver are pitted against one another. That's the basic issue. When we're talking about God's provision in our lives, that's the basic issue. That's the, that's the central problem of the human heart. Romans 1 says that we pit the gift and the giver apart from each other. We, we would rather worship and serve the creation, God's gifts, rather than the creator who is forever blessed. And that this tendency sends us down the road of judgment. So that the, all the times, I, I mentioned previously about this tendency of like, what is the categories of prayer? Friends, the truth is, is that one of... One of the most easy, one of the easiest ways to pray is when we are desperate. And one of the hardest times to pray is when we're satisfied. Which tells you what? The gift is not driving us toward the giver. The gift is taking place of the giver. So this difference is really what prayer's for. Because in prayer, as I'm speaking to God about his future provision, I am uniting with the giver before the gift comes. And I'm tying these two things together before his provision 
so that hopefully after his provision, they, st they stay tied together. This is basically not work. This is basically prayer before provision is our way of keeping the gift and the giver connected. Now, just practically speaking, you, some of you are just really, you love God to death, but you're, you're really not okay with the gap. You're not okay with the gap. Friends, that gap is there for your own good to make you closer to him so that when he provides the separation that leads to judgment will not occur. That's his goodness to you. And I would just tell you this. You can talk to him. You can yell at him. You can lament before him. You do what you need to do to talk to him. Because you and he need to grow together. Just don't ignore him. Ignoring him is judgment. It, it, it will. It, it's, it's the one thing you cannot do. You will be tempted to allow your heart to just grow numb to God because you're waiting so long for the provision. Don't do that. Don't do that. Do whatever you need to do, but don't do that. Talk to God. Talk to others. Understand that the gap between his promise and his provision is meant to keep the gift and the giver united. That's the goal of every one of God's good gifts, is to drive you to him. Every one of God's gifts is meant to drive you to him. Even the gospel itself is meant to drive you to God. The gospel itself is God's greatest gift, but it's meant to drive you toward him. Uh, later on in the next chapter of Acts, Peter says to the people, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, this is what most of us think the gospel is about. It's about being forgiven. No. He says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some of us think that the gospel is about you know, having these worship experiences, having these experiences. Nope, that's not what it's about. For the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's the point of the gospel. That's the point of every one of God's gifts. The Lord is calling you to himself. Every one of his blessings, every one of his gifts is an on-ramp to walking with him. That's why they exist. That's why they're there. And that's why they'll be there when it's the right time. So if whatever God has done for you or is doing for you, he will do it for you if it makes you happy in him. That's God's goodness. That's all we should ever want. If a gift brings you closer to him, it's good. If withholding a gift brings you closer to him, it's good. Now, God's deposit, his promise of his goodness, involves a certain algorithm. I just want to walk you through this as we conclude. The basic, the basic formula of God's promised goodness is, is this. If God has given himself, will he not also give us? X, Y, and Z, right? That's Romans 8. How, if, if, God did not, if God gave it, freely gave us his son, how will he not also give us all things? This is the basic way I approach God with my needs. God's given me himself. Therefore, I can trust that he will give me whatever I need. That's, that's the basic math, right? Well, we think of that in Romans 8 related to Jesus. But the truth is, it's just God giving himself, 
Because in, in, in Luke chapter 11, the very same math is expressed with the Holy Spirit this time. Listen to this. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Here's the basic math. If God is willing to give you himself, then you can trust him with all other provision. Now, is that a good promise for someone who wants the provision, but not the provider? No, not at all. It's, it's not encouraging to someone who would rather ignore God as soon as God gave him what they wanted, right? That's not an encouragement. The only encouragement that is, is for people who want God more than the gifts and who believe that God is the ultimate gift. So the math of this constant reassurance in scripture is if God gives you himself, he will give you every lesser thing. In order for that to bring any comfort to you, you must believe that himself, God, is the greatest gift. And you must not only believe that, you must be experiencing that. And this is what prayer is. This promise is great at an intellectual level. The math adds up. If God gives me the most precious thing himself, then he'll give me all the lesser things. This only brings comfort to someone who's actually experiencing the ongoing goodness of God. Romans 8, Luke 11, these bring actual real-life encouragement to those people who are experiencing the actual real-life goodness of God. Once you feel and sense and experience the treasure of Jesus, the treasure of the Holy Spirit, and you understand it is this unbelievably wonderful gift, then you're able to join with Jesus in Luke 11 or with Paul in Romans 8 and say, well, if God's given me this great treasure, how will he not also give me whatever else I need? Prayer keeps your heart in tune with the touchstone of God's treasury, the best piece of God's treasury and it allows you from there to keep the gift and the giver united and to keep your sense of scale intact as you wait for God's provision in other areas of your life. Let me pray for us.